Okay, so I'd like to welcome back to the show once again my somewhat co-conspirator these days, Dave Smethurst. How are we doing, Dave? Oh, great, Frank. Uh, it's good to, good to hear your voice. Looking forward to this today and to speak to Frank. Been looking forward to this. Yeah, my, my some a little bit hoarse voice today. I'm just getting over some kind of really bad cold flu type of thing, but I'm sure the listeners will be familiar with that. It's a, a recurring theme over the last year, so uh, we'll we'll crack on as usual. Uh, and uh, joining us once again uh, today is the one and only Frank Milburn, making another return appearance. So nice to have you back on, mate. How are you doing today? Oh, cheers, mate. I'm doing good. It's good to be on with you guys. Yeah, oh, always a pleasure. So uh, I've got a few topics for discussion, which I can introduce, and then I'll, I'll hand it over to you guys to get some thoughts. Um, and I'm going to keep the introductions fairly broad so you guys can just kind of delve into whatever aspects you find interesting and, you know, talk about whatever you like from there. And feel free to go on tangents and all of that kind of thing. So first of all, quite a long intro this one, so we'll see how my, my uh, throat holds up. Something that I've been thinking about quite a lot recently, partly because it's uh, come up in some recent conversations on and off the show, and also because it's been mentioned in some of the legislation in the NDAA and the IAA, is misinformation and disinformation efforts relating to the UFO topic. So there's been a lot of rumours throughout the decades about attempts from intelligence agencies to deliberately spread disinformation in the field, to muddy the waters even more than they already are, to make it difficult to separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. It kind of stands to reason that if there are deeply buried secrets within off-the-book secret government departments, that they would deploy a wide range of tactics to throw people off the scent to make it harder to solve certain mysteries. And there are some pretty well-known examples of this, such as the case of Rick Doty, who was a former Air Force Special Investigator, who controversially fed disinformation to UFO researcher Paul Benevitz, and then went on to reveal that government agencies have monitored UFO researchers and even in some cases sent people undercover to UFO conferences. And a good example of this that I found when I was kind of making some notes uh, for this episode is this particular mention in an interview with George Knapp. So they're talking about agents undercover at UFO events and Knapp asks, in a situation like that, is there an assignment, something specific, or just go and keep an eye on it, see what you find out? Doty replies, there's just a general collection assignment, go and collect whatever information you can. Knapp says, does it still happen? Doty says, I'm sure it does. I've saw, I've met two here. There were two here because the actual uh, question and answer session is is at a UFO conference. And uh, Doty carries on. One from the Air Force and one from Air Force OSI out of Nellis. And Knapp says, you can spot them. Doty says, he readily admitted it to us. Knapp replies, where does that information go? What would they be doing with it now? And Doty says, they complete what they refer to as a domestic intelligence report, a collections report on attending a conference, a UFO conference. They might find something interesting to write about, to write in the report. They might hear something that might be of interest to Air Force intelligence, and that's what they do. 
the thing is it gets kind of more complicated because some of the reasons for this can have a little bit more to do with actually just protecting top secret projects that perhaps have nothing to do with UFOs. And that was the case, or so Doty claims, with the Paul Benevitz incident. Doty said that they led Benevitz down a path of thinking that what he was seeing was was all UFOs, whereas what he was actually seeing was a mix of genuine UFOs and also some top-secret national security projects. Also, even more confusingly, Doty claims that some of the material shown to Benefits was legit UFO footage and that they had a policy of showing a mix of true and false information to make it more believable. Anyway, the main point here is that these disinformation efforts are, are, are known to have taken place in the past. And I tend to think that if they took place in the past, you know, they, they most likely still will be happening now. And as these efforts to increase transparency on the topic progress, they may be even be stepping up those efforts. So what is the extent of these types of efforts that have took place in the past? You know, in the present day, are they still taking place? And to what extent? You know, are they trying to mislead the general public and or the UFO community? So, Frank, I'm obviously quite intrigued to hear your thoughts on this, as you yourself have a, a background in intelligence work. So if that's all right, we'll start with you, mate. What are your thoughts on all of that? Yeah, well, I think if you kind of go back to the early days um, from sort of 1947 and the onwards and through the 1950s, there was definitely a lot of paranoia about um, UFO groups um, for a couple of reasons. One was um, that literally thousands of people were turning up to these kind of so-called contactee events. And also it was the general paranoia of the time. You're talking at a time where, um, you know, the Soviet Union was challenging the United States. Um, it had developed its own atomic bomb and the Americans were very worried um, that somehow, you know, the Soviets could infiltrate these groups Okay, I mean, this is a time where school children were being uh, taught to, to hide under their desks in the event of a nuclear attack, and you had, um, you know, bomb shelters being built. So it was part of that general kind of red scare of the time. Um, also, in the political sphere, you had McCarthyism going on. There's actually, um, which is basically a witch hunt against, you know, pol pol uh, political figures, against intellectuals, you know, basically the reds under the bed scare. If you look at this, um, there's a very, actually a very interesting book um, by Nick Redfern. It's called. Um, uh, UFOs at the Kremlin. And um, it talks about like the early contact T uh, movement and, um, and Adamski. Okay. He was, a, he was a prominent member of that, George Adamski. And he was actually, I don't know if he was an avowed communist, but he certainly talked about communism at some of his um, you know, talks that he gave. And again, you know, he was talking to hundreds, if not thousands of people. And then he wrote his book, you know, The Flying Saucers of Landed. Um, which I think sold um, about 125,000 copies, which is, which is not bad at all. But from the point of view of the FBI, who started um, a sort of a big file on him, um, they were worried that somehow this would translate into, um, you know, the Soviets being in, able to infiltrate these, these UFO kind of contactee groups. Uh, and there were thousands of them, uh, of people involved, that the, the, the Soviets would be able to infiltrate this. And somehow that would bring communism to America um, through the use of, kind of contactee groups. So I can kind of understand that that very early um, paranoia. Um, but actually, Nick Redfern goes on, and I've seen <laughs> some of the files that, that he actually looked at. And uh, Adamski and his uh, sort of associates and other sort of prominent members of the movement, they literally had sort of hundreds of pages of, of FBI documents on them about, you know, what they were about, who they were doing, what, what political sympathies they had. So I think we can understand the paranoia started kind of then. 
um, you know, in, in those kind of early days. Yeah, definitely. I mean, what what sort of extent do you think that that kind of thing is still carrying on to this day? Do you think there are like you know in, intelligence operatives kind of like within the UFO community and that kind of thing? And what might the motivations be to be still doing that at, at, at the moment? I think. Well, I mean, I don't know because um, I'm not privy to the operations, but I think that you would want to um, probably understand if you're an intelligence officer, say an Air Force intelligence officer, you'd want to understand. Um, is somebody like a prominent researcher, is somebody receiving information from somebody uh, who's working in government or working in the military who has access to classified information principally? And is that information uh, being divulged to uh, unauthorized persons, um, especially if there were the case of you know, some top secret project like a, a new reconnaissance, a new reconnaissance drone or aircraft? Um, you wouldn't want that information about that being divulged um, to to non-authorized persons. So I think definitely that would be uh, that would be one example of it. And and to me that would make sense as well. You'd, you'd want to understand that. Yeah, like you say, it does make sense that they would want to understand the what is being seen as well. You know, like if if there are secret national security projects, you know, like new vehicles and things like that in the air. They would probably want to know what what the extent that that is being seen by the UFO community and whatnot as well. Yeah, you? but but I mean I, I find that very very kind of intrusive because it's a fine line uh, between you know ev- investigating um, uh, sensitive information which is being divulged and actually you know sort of like spying on your civilian population. Right, it's a very fine line. Um, I mean I could understand if I don't know you've got some engineer working on a. Uh, who, who's got? He's working for DoD, for example, and he's got access to. He's working on a, on a top secret project, and he comes to the office at the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and he says, "Look, the, I've got this researcher who's ringing me up and basically harassing me and asking me questions." Right? So he goes and makes a report to to, to OSI. I can understand then. Okay, you would have to um, initiate an investigation, but it seems to me something quite different if you're actually going to conferences and being like a fly on the wall. Because to, to have a start point for investigation, you have to have a potential source of threat, right? So somebody trying to infiltrate your organization, whether it's a, you know, a Russian spy or whether it's a, a, a researcher who, who's talking to people who have access to sensitive information. So there's got to be a starting point and, and, a, and a justification for an investigation. Mm. Go on, Dave. You like you're itching to, uh, to jump in. Well, no, it was really interesting listening to what Frank was saying because when I was thinking about this, the sort of legitimate counterintelligence stuff like Frank's described where clearly if you've got special projects and the secrets coming out, you've got to track that down. You don't want that going out. You, if there was any reverse engineering or whatever, whatever, t- secret tech, you need to protect that. But what I think is the difference here and, and where it becomes counterintelligence and where it's something else is that normally you would try and confuse the enemy and keep something secret. That's what you do. But in this case, really, because of the, the, this transparency thing, the aim seems to be confuse the public and keep things secret. And the aim of that is to lessen sort of political pressure for disclosure so it doesn't get to Congress. So it's a different type of vibe. It's the same techniques, but it's a different sort of type of vibe. That's what it feels like. So it doesn't feel like a classic, if there is a classic counterintelligence operation, because I listened to... Uh, Nick Redfern doing an interview. I haven't read the book, but and he said there was actually some 
he felt there was some actual communist infiltration into a lot of those UFO groups. And also there's the thing about trying to find secrets about reverse engineering or whatever they knew about UFOs, which we know the other intelligence powers are trying to get into. So there's a legitimate effort. But then you've got this other effort, which sort of Frank's alluded to about, is it undemocratic? So if it was me anyway, if I was going to, what, what i see, I was thinking what I would do, I'd sort of infiltrate the press and the news, first of all, if I wanted to play it down. I'd infiltrate UFO Twitter to start getting those messages out. And this is what you hear from some people who are engaged in it as well. I'd sort of go into UFO groups, but I'd start to attack the disclosure ab advocates' reps. And I'm saying this, but it's what we've seen, so it's not, it's not me being a genius, this. But, and uh, the other thing I'd start to do, I'd start to feed in some disinformed, fantastic stories. And a little bit more insidiously, I'd start to promote weirder ideas as well. because. The field's got a bit of an Achilles heel because when you get into it, you know, we all know this, getting into it, it can get quite weird quite quickly. So it's quite easy to exploit that and get and focus on that as well because that turns the general public off. Clearly, I'd try and set people off against each other. I'd pay some people who are more interested in clicks to get, you know, to go for certain stories. But, and again, there's that thing about uh, doing this sort of thing that you some people might not even know they're doing it. You pick people who are prone, who are that way inclined anyway, and just encourage them, feed them false stuff and get them at it, and they never even know they've been influenced. You just think it's your mate who's done it or something like that. Clearly, I'd also go for congressional staffers and say it's a load of rubbish, which links back to universities and mainstream, and I'd sort of go for academia, as I say. So, so what I'm trying to get at is using the same techniques but with a different sort of darker purpose, that's what I think we're seeing there. I think, and, and I don't know the extent of it, and Frank can probably be a bit more sober about it. And there, I know there's a lot of, it's easier for me to pontificate, but there are a lot of checks and balances and rules about it. But that's what I sort of think. And I think the difference is, as I say, it's aimed at an operation against the public, not against the enemy. And that's maybe the difference in the sort of let it down a dark path, as it were. Mm. Yeah, <clears throat> I was going to say that there is a precedent for that. Um, you know, there's the Robert Robertson panel report in the early 50s, mm. um, which um, Dr. James McDonald was very, very critical of. And when he was when um, Dr. McDonald actually got hold of the Blue Book files, he found a copy of the Robertson panel report. And, it, you know, it actually says uh, that um, the the intelligence agencies should effectively be using um, sort of, you know, prominent, prominent members of the public. Yeah, and the media uh, to 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 influence and also to monitor UFO groups. So you've got the historical precedent right there. Um, and then, I mean, going on, uh, I mean, we know that uh, Blue Book was a whitewash and disinformation um, because uh, McDonald, you know, really had the bit between the teeth about that. And um, you know, he 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 went on and said that when he when he gave uh, his submission to the UFO symposium, uh, McDonald was very critical and said, "Look, there's no scientific basis behind this." And you know, how can you say that, um, you know, the, the UFOs, that, that, that UFOs have been properly investigated when, you know, a third of the reports, you can't actually um, substantiate like what, what they are. You haven't solved them. So I think this has been a very pervasive cover up that, that continues to this day that he, in, in, his, in, his, in his way, was able to expose and very bravely, I mean, for his professional reputation. Yeah, I think it's a pretty like a complex 
topic really isn't it you know like the various different reasons why you you might want to have it like intelligence operatives monitoring or influencing you know the ufo community or, or, or the public i was thinking uh while you guys were just talking you know there's a few different scenarios that i could see being a reason for that like, it, like if you just use like the the united states as as an example but it's probably very similar in a lot of other um, you know countries as well um, you, you might want to have somebody there to monitor what is being seen and known by researchers, which is kind of what we started talking about there. So like you, if you were testing secret, you know, national security um, projects, you would probably want to know if that's being picked up on by UFO researchers. So you would want people in the UFO community or at least monitoring the community, perhaps going to events and what have you, just to see the kinds of things that are being shown, you know, in terms of the pictures and the videos that are being captured and what people are seeing. Um, or obviously, if there is any kind of reverse engineering tech that's being tested, even more so that you would want to, to do that. Or even just what they what the UFO community has been able to understand about truly anomalous objects, which might be non-human. You would probably want to get a handle on how much the, the UFO community actually understands about that. Also, on top of that, you might want to. There might actually be adversarial nations having agents within, say, the US UFO research community to try and pick up on again, what is being spotted, all of those various scenarios I mentioned earlier, I think they would perhaps be particularly interested in, you know, top secret kind of new aircraft and things like that. You might have, let's say, Russia or China having agents in the US, you know, UFO research community to try and get some hints about what may, may be being tested. You know, obviously US citizens would have a, a good chance to be able to pick up on that and take footage or just compile sighting reports on that kind of thing. Then, on top of that, you would have, like you guys were just kind of finishing up on there, possible deliberate stigmatization of information that's put out into the public sphere rather than specifically the UFO community. You might want to kind of deliberately stigmatize the UFO topic, and that, again, could be something that, you know, an intelligence agency might want to, be, you know, be charged with doing to deliberately stigmatize the topic, to make everybody think it's just daft and you know, little green men, sources and all the rest of it, as we know, has, has kind of took place to detract from real reverse engineering efforts, which might be going on. And then you might also want to deliberately put out misinformation to within the UFO community to muddy the waters, to actually make it even harder to separate the wheat from the chaff for any of those people who I mentioned earlier who are, you know, perhaps an adversarial agent or something like that, or even just for researchers themselves. So there's there's a lot of different angles there that, that you know, there could be um, things going on. What do you reckon, Frank? Is, is there any other things there or any of those that you, that you might differ on a little bit? What do you reckon? The big one for me, um, the big one for me, and I'm talking as if I were, I'm not... I'm not part of the, you know, the cover up of the, the core secrets, right? I'm a, an intelligent, I'm a counterintelligence officer from Air Force Office of Special Investigations or from NCIS or whatever it is. Um, I know that uh, over the last three decades, you know, Chinese espionage ha ha has exploded exponentially. The Russians have always been there in the US and have been very, very effective. I know that they have an interest in penetrating um, anything that, you know, DOD or, um, you know, Department of Energy are doing and, and you know, anything to do with, with basically aerospace and defense and our defense capability in general. So I would be concerned, yes, um, because I know from my own research, my own real life research that, you know, everywhere, everywhere that you have, you know, kind of like testing grounds or you have, 
you know, aerospace and defense companies, all those places are highly penetrated by, by the Chinese and the Russians, even in terms of like, you know, the towns where people live, you know, just, just to pick up information because they know that scientists and people who work on these projects, they have to fre- frequent areas, you know, outside of, uh, of the locations where they're working. So I would also, yes, to a certain extent, I'd be, I'd be concerned um, at UFO conferences um, for, the, for the reason that, um, you know, very likely that, um, foreign intelligence agencies would be interested in those too, because you could have a researcher who's particularly on the ball and, and, and do has has particularly good contacts. So I'd want to know what he or she knows if I were, you know, a foreign intelligence agent, a hostile intelligence agent, because they might have an insight to, uh, you know, a source that that I want to have as a source for myself. So those are all uh, those are all pretty uh, pretty good reasons for for why you know counterintelligence agencies would be interested in, in uh, you know UFOs uh, and the UFO movement. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting, on, isn't it? The inference sometimes. I was just thinking of what Frank was saying then, because if you do go, they might have like inside contacts, like you're saying, Frank, and somebody's let something go. But it's always amazing me with intelligence stories you read, but people might hear a fact. And there's a massive inference that, uh, you know, a government or intelligence service can draw from what seems quite an innocuous fact about how the tech works, what the infrastructure is like, etc. So there probably, there probably is a lot of that going on, and it's highly legitimate also as well. As you've mentioned, past Frank, about the highly destructive capability of some of the tech. That's really important to protect that as well, isn't it? So it's, it's quite a... Yeah, I think that definitely it's a very fine line between what they're doing. These guys have got to, or the guys and women have got to control it like that and protect the secrets and protect the projects. But it's this under overlay of also maybe a political thing of trying to to keep the transparency down so they don't get political pressure. And it seems to me that Lou and Chris Mellon, but Lou particularly with his counterintelligence background, has actually anticipated a lot of what was going to go on. And he's sort of been one step ahead of him, really, in terms of, you know, getting people on board. The idea was raising awareness in different areas in a very clever and, you know, measured way. Then applying pressure through Twitter and other groups to get to Congress. And as I probably said a couple of weeks ago, because that's the big lever, isn't it, Congress to open the door. And it's interesting to see Lou's application of counterintelligence techniques, you might argue, or whatever, and then I think following behind is all these other techniques to try and discredit what Lou's doing, but he seems to be one step ahead of him. And that's a little bit simplistic, I know. And he probably follows a more emergent strategy, Lou, where he's seeing what's happening and then doing a bit of a dance himself or, you know, with all these other people. But I think there's a little bit of a sort of counterintelligence war going on in the background to try and discredit the subject and push it forward. So it's interesting anyway, but yeah, anyway, so. I, I agree with them. Um, sorry, I agree with with, with, with everything um, that you've just said. Um, I draw kind of a line in my mind between uh, different types of, of counterintelligence and or influence agents. One is going to be, you know, your 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 standard um, AFSOI guy, uh, Office of Special Investigations guy, or um, um, you know, uh, Naval Counterintelligence guy from NCIS who are trying to protect the tech and they're doing that quite legitimately. And then the types who are counterintelligence and influence agents who are intimately involved or who are intimately involved with the security surrounding um, these black projects, whether it's at Department of Energy or DOD, because the vast majority of counterintelligence people um, are not going to be read into that. 
right? So I draw I draw a kind of distinction between the, so that the general counterintelligence guys, right? You know, I, I need to protect the tech and uh, you know deceive the enemy as to what we actually have, um, provide operational security, uh, disinformation, and and deception effectively. And I draw a, a, a distinction between them. And the guys who are protecting the counterintelligence guys who are protecting the core secrets, and I believe that they're the ones who really want to be influencing, uh, you know, like the level of disclosure, how fast it's going, and also, you know, um, with, with within the UFO community as well, and and with Congress, as Dave pointed out. So um, that's how I draw the distinction in my head. Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a, a complex area, and I think I think sometimes there's a bit of a kind of you know sort of like a a broad brushstroke approach that people take on, on UFO Twitter where they sort of say like, oh, you can't trust this person because of their intelligence or whatever. You know, it, it, it's it's way too, you know, tiring everyone with the same brush kind of thing. You know, there have been some unfortunate, you know, things that have gone on in the past, but it's one of the reasons I wanted to get uh, to get you on to, to talk about this, Frank, is that it, it's so complicated and there's some people doing very good work to protect national secrets that are very important. And I think it's it, you've got to understand the nuance of all of the different reasons why why these kind of operations may be in place um and you know there's certain things like you mentioned earlier frank that you know perhaps cross a line of interfering in the rights of citizens and things like that which are not so good but then there's a lot of other things as well that are absolutely necessary and something that i think we have to bear in mind in the, in the topic have you got anything else you want to add on that frank <clears throat> excuse me no i was gonna i wanted to say that um a lot of the disinformation comes from the UFO community itself. Now, I mean, going back to your point about, um, you know, they, I've, I've had it a lot, like, you know, you, you can't be trusted because your former intelligence and former military, military people are pathological liars. Actually, you know, we're here to protect, <laughs> we're here to protect our countries and our allies, right? I say we, because I'm not anymore. Um, but a lot of the disinformation um, comes from the kind of ridiculous ideas that are perpetuated within certain, uh, certain centers of the, of the UFO community itself. Um, when they say things, for example, like, um, oh, free energy, it's being held back, you know, an anti-grav, it's being held back because of greed. Well, if you use your logic, it's like, well, if you were an aerospace and defense company, if you were Boeing or Lockheed, right, and you had access uh, to, 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 to this technology and you could actually produce craft for the U.S. Air Force, um, you know, a company is in business to make money. If you could sell if you could sell five observable platforms to the U.S. Air Force and actually put them into into production, you'd be making huge amounts of money. So where does the greed come in? Um, you hear ridiculous things like that. The other ridiculous things that are perpetuated is, oh well, they hold on to you know the anti-grav and the free energy because otherwise, you know, every small island nation in the world could be producing their own anti-grav craft, right? And I've even heard that you know they mentioned not being discriminatory, but they've mentioned like you know Madagascar and um, and Sri Lanka. Well. Those countries don't even produce first-generation jet aircraft. So how would you expect them to, to produce a five-observable craft? I mean, there's very few countries in the world that can actually produce a fifth-generation aircraft. Certain European countries, UK, USA, um, South Korea, they produced one with Indonesia, although it doesn't have um, you know, internal weapon loads. Uh, the Chinese, but um, their stealth is quite iffy, and, and obviously uh, the engines are iffy, and obviously it's quite obviously ripped off from both the Americans and the Russians. The Russian Su-57, yeah, it is a it's a sort of a 4.5 gen aircraft, not a fifth gen aircraft. So do you see what I'm going with this? You have these kind of like a, um, really illogical um, kind of statements that, that are perpetuated by 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 the UFO community, um, which which don't have any bearing in in real life. And the other one that I've heard was 
um, oh, uh, they do have anti-grav, but they won't produce it because then they'd uh, they wouldn't be able to sell like their current, you know, continue to sell their current technology, i.e., jet aircraft. Well, it's not like you just take one new air, one new platform and you insert it in and you get rid of all the other platforms. If you look at the U.S. Air Force, they've got loads, hundreds, you know, thousands of legacy platforms that they have to keep going because they can't afford to have just F-35s and F-22s, right? So they have to have legacy platforms. So what do they do? They jack up something like the F-15, they call it the F-15X, and they say, right, that's going to be operating, you know, 30 years into the future alongside our fifth and our sixth generation aircraft. So, and also as well, America, you know, the American corporate uh, aerospace and defense corporations, they still be selling like conventional technology, i.e., you know, uh, fight jet fighter jets and the rest of it to, to the rest of the world. So it's simply not an argument to say that they're holding back this technology because they don't want to make money, right? I mean, they would be making money if they sold it. It would be the sale of the century to the American government. It would be like, you know, you are now the most powerful country in the world guaranteed for, you know, the next generation, you know, for generations or all time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny because I've been thinking about that actually a lot over the last few days. Um, there's been quite a lot of discussion about that particular thing. A few interviews recently that have uh, touched on that um, without going into too much about who said what and things like that. But this idea of like these, um, you know, incredible technologies already existing and then them being held back and, you know, all the rest of it. And I, I, I agree with you, Frank. I don't think that really would be the case because if there's a completely game-changing technology that already exists out there, um, like say, for example, Elon Musk got wind of it and he tries to silence it because he wants to sell his electric cars, that really doesn't make any sense to me anyway because what he would do is he'd actually either try and replicate it or buy it out and then use that to make trillions. You know, if, you, if you've got something that would completely revolutionize everything on the planet, surely that's the thing you would do. You'd embrace it. And as soon as you realize it's a complete no-brainer, you would then take over the world with it. Or, you know, you'd the country could potentially be the, a global power for the next few hundred years if you had something of, of that level. So, yeah, I, I do tend to think that that, that is the case. And uh, perhaps... You know, there's also the thing as well, on a slightly different note, that, you know, some of these narratives may actually be encouraged as well by, I don't know, adversarial governments perhaps and things like that as well. The, yeah, I, I suppose it's a fine line that as well, you know, if, if you don't want to become too paranoid about things that are, uh, are being spoken about and, and what's being influenced by this and that, the other intelligence agency. But it is, uh, it is I suppose, interesting to consider and, and worth bearing in mind. Are you anything so, to add on that? There's one other point. I mean, you know, people get fixated on FOIA, on the Freedom of Information Act, right? And they say, oh, well, it's gone to, you know, the, the technology, it's been devolved to private corporations. And I, I believe, yes, okay, private corporations have received this technology in the United States, but FOIA isn't the be-all and end-all. You could, um, you can FOIA all you want, but if something is classified like top secret and above, you're not going to get it anyway. Do you see what I'm saying? So people get very, very fixated on FOIA. Oh, that it's a private company because they can't be FOIA. Well, Sorry, you can FOIA all you want, but uh, if it's classified information, you're not going to get it, right? Um, the other thing that I hear a lot is, um, you know, it's, the technology is being held back because um, uh, so so it can perpetuate, you know, oil and gas production by oil and gas companies, right? Well, I used to work for oil and gas companies, and you know, they know they're not stupid, right? They do scenario planning, they do future forecasting, they know that oil and gas isn't going to last forever. That's why they've made massive in investments in in, in, uh, in cleaner energy, right? So. And if you look at 
if a new technology did come in, who would be best placed to exploit it? It would be companies like oil and gas companies who've got uh, already have got you know uh, considerable infrastructure. Okay, they'd have to change it, but they've got the financial resources, right, the capital to actually be able to um, you know to 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 invest in it and to promote it and to basically control it. So I find all these arguments uh, that are perpetuated. It's kind of like a, a disinformation for for the UFO community being perpetuated by themselves. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, um, oh, you, you're back there. I think it cut you off for a second there. But yeah, yeah. Like we're, can you hear me okay? We're all going. Yeah, all, all good, mate, yeah. Yeah, I, I was thinking an example of that as well is um, a slight sort of side topic to the one we were talking about is is um, tobacco. When tobacco companies realised that they were kind of doomed and, they, you know, they didn't really have much of a future selling the product that they were they were selling, they invested very, very heavily in vaping and in heated tobacco products and things of that nature. So they're not just going to kind of roll over and die. You know, companies like, for example, oil companies like Shell or whatever it might be, if they got wind that there was some kind of incredible new technology, they're not going to try and silence it because if it really was that game-changing, it would be inevitable that that, that was going to come out sooner or later. So what they would probably do is, like I said, buy it out, take over that market, and then use that to you know solidify the power on you know in the world economy and whatnot. That's my opinion, anyway. What, what do you reckon, Dave? You, you got? Oh, I, I, I mean, it's the curse of conspiracy theories, isn't it? But they lack nuance. I mean, they're all very simplistic. I'm like Frank was reeling a few of them. Off. I was just going to add um, on that. Yeah. Um, the other problem with those arguments about you know the technologies being held back because of greed. Um, both on the part of aerospace and defense companies and then, um, you know, oil and gas companies. Well, to do that, that's a hell of a lot of people involved in a conspiracy, right? And by definition, you need to have as few people as, as possible involved in a conspiracy in order, in order to perpetuate the secrecy. So are you really trying to tell me that all these titans of industry across the world, that everybody is like read into, you know, these, these free energy projects? I just don't buy it. Mm. But that's it. I mean, it's a lot more sophisticated, isn't it? And it's like if you're, Frank's talk about the infrastructure. I remember listening to you talk about, Frank, the engines. The Chinese didn't have the engines. They were using the Russian engines. Those things are quite important to understand, you know, where, thing, where things are landing as well. But a lot of these people who have starved their information, you know, for decades, they make quite good careers out of mega speculation, the Galactic Council, this, that, and the other. Nobody was there to check them, and it was all based on this very silly and simplistic thinking. And, as we've got more information, that's looking a bit more, you know, out of place, really. One thing just, and I don't know Richard, I saw him speak, funnily enough, at Manchester, is that that? And he seems a nice bloke, Richard Dodge, I suppose he would do doing that job. And and I don't, I can understand what he was doing for the US government, to be honest with you. But when I listen to him talk, 80% of what he says, I think, oh, that's great, that. And then, you know, or I recognise it. Then 20% on top is really, really weird sort of wacky aliens in container tanks in Area 50, really strange stuff. And I don't know whether he's still spinning or not or he's just talking it up like everybody else. But that's the sort of thing, the example of where you can prey on people's credulity because you say something that sounds okay and then you go to these sort of default, you know, strange positions that are very simplistic. And that, and that like Frank's saying there, that's how disinformation from the community can arise as well, I think. It's, I, mean, I don't know about him. I'm just using him as an example, you know, just as something I've witnessed. I don't know particularly the veracity of what he's saying. But it is, yeah, it's, so I, I, the UFO community has, and that's how I think it is used, that factor in the UFO community is used to push it towards the weird, you know, and uh, 
to make it less credible, you know, the underlying narrative of what we're looking at. Very interesting. I think, yeah, one thing that I'm uh, particularly interested to hear about in, in the coming months and, and I suppose years, depending on how it plays out, is that the uh, the legislation that's currently working through the system in the States actually requires that report from the, the Comptroller General, which is kind of that government watchdog in the US, isn't it? And and that, that actually includes uh, the requirement for a report on not only the, the UFO topic in general, going back to January the 1st, 1947, like we've talked about quite a lot, but also the extent of misinformation efforts and uh, I've just got a little quote here from, from the actual proposed language itself. Uh, and the requirement is to, quote, compile and itemize a complete historical record of the intelligence community's involvement with unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena, including successful or unsuccessful efforts to identify and track unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena and any intelligence community efforts to obfuscate manipulate public opinion, hide or otherwise provide unclassified or classified misinformation about unidentified aerospace undersea phenomena or related activities, unquote. So it'll be very interesting to see if we do learn anything more about all the things that we've just discussed. And, well, I suppose if any of that information actually makes it into an unclassified report at any point that the public can actually see, definitely one to keep an eye on. So anything either of you guys want to add on, on all that before we move on to another topic? Yeah, I was going to say that that is potentially very dangerous for like American political stability. I mean, it's good that they're doing it, but I think there's going to be a number of problems. One, a lot of the people who were involved in those kind of early efforts to, to obfuscate and to deceive and, and uh, you know provide the operational security, uh, they're going to be, they'll have died off, right? Or they're going to, and the other problem is that if you uncover like, you know, massive amounts of illegality, which I believe have gone on for, you know, since 1947 or maybe even earlier, then you're creating uh, the possibility for a massive crisis in the American body politic. If you've had, you know, this kind of like parallel state effectively operating for years and years and that potentially has, uh, you know, ruined people's lives, potentially assassinated people or encouraged them to kill themselves. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, like MK Ultra and all those kind of things. Um, potentially, you are creating a, what, I, what I called in my first paper, a, 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 um, I called it an Assange, uh, Manning and um, Snowden moment on a, co- co- on, on, on a cosmic scale. We were talking about a cosmic Watergate potentially um, that would really kind of upend things. And I think that then there would be some kind of effort to keep that under wraps by Congress. And I think that, you know, very few people would actually need to, you know, be briefed in on that because it's potentially um, massively explosive. Yeah, I mean, Frank's right there. I mean, Frank's right there. If you think of the current state of American politics, and we're all getting political about it, but if you think of the Trump scenario where it's false facts, alternative facts, this whole, it's a bit of based like on conspiracy thinking itself in some ways, you know, the way it approaches stuff. But the last thing, I suppose, the American sort of, uh, you know, Overton window, the consensus it needs is, a you know, massive evidence of big state, uh, as Frank was just saying, big state malfeasance, basically. But I think I wonder, just listening to Frank, that it made me think, I wonder if they put that in as a bit of a bargaining chip, Congress. So if they do find that stuff out, it gives them a lot of leverage on these agencies to sort of uh, 
cooperate in other ways, you know, in terms of the, the, the bigger effort going forward. I mean, I don't know if they would think that it like that, but they are. I see Chris Mellon thinking like that anyway, and maybe Lou or, or some of the other smart Congress people thinking that sort of, they almost get the evidence and then it's a bit of a, not blackmail, well, I suppose it is blackmail in a way. You get the evidence, but you don't release it, you know. It's a very, it's a really interesting point you just raised there, Frank, and they're very interesting. I, I, yeah. I just add to that, I mean, now really, with if you look at all the turmoil that's been going on, you know, the, 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 like Dave alluded to, you know, the, the attack on Capitol Hill, if you look beyond that, um, you know, the um, when um, Floyd George, George Floyd was killed, and, you know, all that kind of, uh, you know, insurrection and, and protests and riots that you had across, the, you know, the US, um, all that kind of instability, um, you know, this would be, you know, effectively provide another case for that. And also, as well, in terms of, if you are uncovering the illegality, then you're looking, for example, well, one aerospace company had access to this technology, another one didn't. So that's unfair market competition. That's totally illegal, right, for a start. So potentially you're looking at billions and billions in lawsuits. Well, my company could have made billions out of this if we'd been able to develop this technology. They did, de they did develop the technology and got billions out of it. So, you know, we, we, we want to launch like massive lawsuits and also lawsuits for people who've been wronged by the state. So it, it opens up, a, 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 you know, multiple cans of worms. And I don't think it's something that America needs right now, especially um, with everything that's going on in, uh, you know, the Indo-Pacific region, you know, what's going on in Crimea. Um, I think it's the last thing that America needs right now is to open up a another massive can of worms when there's already so much dissension and so much uh, sort of bipolarity in the American political system. Yeah, you think it's pretty unlikely we'll actually see any of that information come out then? Because even if that report actually does, you know, kind of the legislation makes it through and the Comptroller General compiles that report, do you think it'll end up getting kept under wraps or like so heavily redacted that the, the public don't really get to, you know, gain any information from it? And perhaps, you know, for good reason from what you're saying? Well, you could get that, but then you could also get, um, you know, you could get like a Watergate where you get, uh, you know, a couple of very intrepid reporters who've got access, who've got very good access to somebody and somebody who's got, um, who's got a gripe and a, re and a reason to divulge. So it could go either way. But it's very, very tricky once you open up that can of worms. But I don't see, I mean, now, 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 you know, the, the, the can opener is getting nearer to the can. Right? So. Yeah. I mean, Lou, Lou and Chris sort of deployed a bit of a, good cop, bad cop strategy, because they essentially said to the military establishment, either we control the release of disclosure, they weren't quite that arrogant, but that was effectively it. They did it in a smooth, or oh, we let all these lunatics do it, what do you prefer? And there might be a little bit of that going on as well, that strategy, you know, controlled, measured uh, disclosure, as opposed to a free-for-all with whistleblowers, conspiracy theorists mad you know a sort of eruption of public feeling so it's interesting just where we've gone that it's quite interesting the whole thing about how to disclose and what you disclose and the manner of it and how it keeps the state uh, what's the word uh, anyway it keeps the state legitimate is the word i was looking for is a real interesting question yeah it is indeed especially considering the you know, kind of unprecedented times around the world at the moment as well. That sort of adds a whole other dimension to it, doesn't it? Um, but yeah, well, obviously we're talking about that. It kind of brings me nicely onto the the next thing I wanted to to bring up, which is something else in the Intelligence Authorization Act, which is the 
provisions for legal protection of whistleblowers. So obviously, if anyone is trying to understand what is going on with the, you know, this kind of mystery, uh, separating the the fact from the fiction is is a is kind of a, a good start, and uh, you know, identifying any any deliberate attempts to introduce, you know, chaff into the mix, as it were, you know. To make it harder to actually find what's going on with the with the wheat to continue the analogy the other thing you you might actually want to do is put these protections in place for the people who want to come forward and provide information on these deeply buried you know secret crash retrieval and reverse engineering programs which are alleged to to exist and the the word in in the intelligence authorization act is is very promising in, in this regard it sort of seeks to establish a, a secure reporting mechanism for people to come forward to the UAP office, whatever it ends up being called in the end, and uh, to to do so without fear of, of legal repercussions. Obviously, this doesn't mean that someone is going to see, you know, the, the legislation go through and immediately uh, the people start appearing on YouTube the next day live, spilling the beans about where the sources and the bodies are. But it does seem like a, a bit of a positive step in, in getting closer to un- understanding what's what's really going on. But it's a lot more complex than that, and it kind of taps into a lot of the issues that we were just talking about. Is what to what extent is that even responsible to break to the public and and things like that? Should there be limitations on it, and whether or not we'll actually end up seeing that anyway? Whether it'll all be heavily redacted and just in closed briefings and whatnot? So, will this actually come to fruition, or will there end up being attempts to kind of wriggle out of the requirements that are included in the IAA, kind of like a little bit what like what happened with the AOIMSG, which was kind of you know offered out as the answer to the Gillibrand Amendment, and then basically didn't really do a lot, and you know, all that kind of led to the much stronger wording in the current legislation. You know, is it enough this time? Will there be more wriggling out? You know, Christopher Mellon and uh, Dr. Gary Nolan have both said that they've spoken to people uh, who are willing to come forward if this legislation does go through, which all sounds kind of positive if you're looking for the answers. Um, so I'm wondering what you guys think about that. And we'll start with you, Dave, perhaps. We've been speaking about this quite a lot recently, sort of on and off the show. So what do you reckon, mate? Well, it's, it's interesting to think about what, what would happen in terms of the of the hearings, what are they? Are they a uh, a last resort if they can't get any transparency and a threat, or are they actually something that will break the impasse? What's the purpose of them? Because if you walk through the IAA, you, hopefully you get more transparent working. There's a joint working group, got a lot of accountability measures, so you would think there'd be information coming through, particularly with the accountability stuff. I personally, and I haven't got a lot of confidence in Kirkpatrick because I think he's not disposed of this project but he's going to have to answer him for that so i think if they don't perform the hearings may be an inevitability uh, or their hearings might be something that they roll out but from the politician's point of view it seems to me and listening to chris sharp on his article you know that he's been writing recently a lot of sources tell him they're really going for these hearings so they obviously i think they think that that's the thing that will make the system the iaa act work properly so i think they're going the other way around and I, I mean, I remember I was listening to Frank talk about this as well, but I think the profile of the whistleblowers is going to have to be pretty old. Not many people are going to come forward, ruin their careers. And there's a lot of informal pressure, because I think you alluded to this in another thing I was listening to, Frank, when you were talking. There's a lot of informal pressure uh, on the whistleblowers. So 
Uh, I think there'll be older people coming forward. And I think uh, there'll obviously be issues around protection. But the thing about closing open hearings is that I think you've got to put a lot of work in. If you look at all the big things since the war, the big hearings, the set-piece hearings, Watergate and all the rest of it, they had a lot of lawyers on them and they did a lot of work to be able to get that information out. And I think if you're going to have open hearings, you're going to have to put a lot of behind-the-scenes work to separate what you can say and what you can't. And so if they don't put that work in behind the scenes, we're likely more likely to get closed hearings and equally, we're not likely to be able to separate the information out. So to sort of in a roundabout way to sort of uh, answer your question, I think the hearings are going, uh, being used as a can opener. I heard Bob Maguire say that the other day, I think he said, and the Wilson Davis is the actual vehicle. You know that if you go through that Wilson Davis thing, that'll, that'll sort of open it up. And the question is, uh, and see what Frank thinks about this. So what information will sort of fall out about that? How close will the hearings be? Uh, and, you know, uh, what will the public hear? It's, it's off to me up in the air as to what we're going to get out of it, really. Yeah, I agree with um, absolutely everything um, Dave said. There's some very good points. Um, if I start with kind of the whistleblower as uh, aspect, um, the problem that I see with the legislation is it puts the onus on the whistleblower, whether you're a government employee or a contractor. So, you know, you can still be discriminated against. You can still be terminated. And meanwhile, you know, you've got to support your family, your kids in school, all the rest of it, um, while you're waiting for, you know, the, um, you know, the, the legal redress, uh, you know, to be carried out. Um, so that's going to be one limiting thing. The other thing is, it is, is it, it's not an amnesty per se. It says you won't be discriminated against. You know, if you if you lose, um, you can't lose your, your your clearance. You can't be discriminated against because of uh, you know having an NDA. But it doesn't say anything about an amnesty for illegality. So you if you've been pri privy to illegal acts, whether it's you know deception operations, whether it's um, illegal market competition where where your company has had access to a technology and it's been um, withheld from another one, or whether it's something far more nefarious. And you know you're a, a you're a former counterintelligence officer, and you know that people were killed. Um, you know to sort of maintain the core secrets. Um, you know that there's no there's no legal amnesty. There's no get out of jail card there. And and also as well, even if you do come forward, I mean you've got to have effectively witness protection. And in terms of the people who my understanding who are behind you know the sort of the cover up and, and the research that I've done is that you know people have been killed and the people who do it um, you know you're going to probably need more than U.S. marshals to protect you and I've made I've made this case before so and in terms of what actually comes out Dave's um, absolutely hit the nail on the head you're going to need a, a terrific kind of infrastructure behind this um, you know lawyers who have clearances people who have clearances a lot of it's going to have to be behind closed doors because if you're going to have somebody who says oh i know all about you know an anti-grav program and what we've got you don't want that going out into the ether for you know russia and, and china and, and all the rest of them so that, that, that there's an enormous amount of problems there and you know going back to the previous point you know opening up a can of worms in terms of like all the all the illegality and the lawsuits you know it, it's it's a tremendous going to be a tremendous undertaking yeah, it really is, and it sort of um, every everything you're saying there kind of underlines the again the nuance and the complexities of, of this whole thing. And again, it's one of them where you hear this kind of thing on, on UFO Twitter a lot. People say, "Oh, why doesn't Luella Zondo just spill the beans? You know, just break his NDA if he's such a patriot and all this kind of thing." It completely misses the point, doesn't it? Of whether it's even responsible to do that. You know, all all of the kind of you know real serious concerns that come along with doing that. It's not the way to go, is it? And and the actual 
way that this is all going to play out is going to be a, a lot longer of a game and it's going to involve all these really complex issues and figuring out ways around them. Anything to add on that, Dave? Well, I mean, it just shows how childish, again, we're coming to the point of nuance again, how childish some of the things on Twitter and just generally how people just think about things and express them and they don't think about that complexity. Oh, just let it all hang out and tell everybody. And it's not, isn't like that. I think the question, well, just listen to the pair of you, actually. The question is, where are we going to get off the train? Let's just say, I mean, I say this a lot, say there's a bit of a, a conflict going on within the government, maybe between the Navy, Army, IC, Congress sort of thing. And then you've got this core group, the DOE, CIA, and they're all fighting over how much should, should they release. And it's been speculated, but the big argument is, I mean, Ross has said this, I've heard Frank sort of alluded to this in previous interviews, but they really the issue is about broadening out the tech, what they've got, so that more people can work on it and they can, they're not slowing down potential development of tech and they can protect the country and all the rest of it. So the question becomes, this conflicting group, at what point, do they get off the disclosure train? Do they get off when they've just they've established a new sort of way of thinking about it internally in the government? Do they get off when they've told people just a little bit about the fact there are these things out there and we don't know, but these are the characteristics? Do they get off at the very far end where they say, actually, they've been here for years, we've done this, we've done that, we're working with two of them? I know I'm not saying we're doing that, it's just an example. And I think that's where this is, that's what the decision is going to be. And what I don't know, is how much the move towards disclosure from these agencies is genuine and how much it's driven by strategic, and it's probably a bit of both, strategic considerations. And the answer to that question will determine where the disclosure train finishes in this process, I think. And it's a really, I don't know the answer to it. I've, I've got a load of time for Lou. I think he's a legitimate person, all the rest of it. I don't think he's playing some, playing us all along. But I do think the issues we've just said, get us to a point where, you know, is it where is it responsible to stop that train as well? That's another issue. And, and so, yeah, uh, uh, that's what I think will determine how this hearing plays out. But they might lose control of it, as Frank was alluding to earlier. Somebody might want to make a name for himself. It might spin out of control. We see it in the papers with stories all the time. And what might be a controlled sort of landing to a fairly safe place on disclosure may well become a bit of a free for all and you know they lose they lose, they've got a tiger by the tail and they, and they let go of the tail you know I, I agree with that completely i mean if you're the u.s government or the uk government or you know someone uh, you're aware of that you're, you're you're the authority and you're aware of, of what you have i mean what are you going to say is the u.s government for example um you're going to say actually yes uh, we have this uh we have this technology um we're on the verge of, of, we've got three of the observables, we're on the verge of getting the other two. No, you're not going to say that because you don't want your, you don't, you don't want China and Russia and the rest to know. And also you're going to say, well, actually, yeah, we've got um, UAP flying around in the atmosphere and also under the oceans um, and in, you know, near Earth orbit. And um, we've got no control over them. And actually they're coming here and they're harvesting, um, they're harvesting people for organs or for food or for, you know, for, for genetic research, whatever it is. I know with the, with the abduction experience. So how, how are you going to say that, that we don't have control over what goes on in our territory and we can't protect you as citizens? Because that's the very foundation of a, of a state, isn't it? That you give up certain freedoms to a government, to, to an overarching sovereign, and then that government is supposed to protect you. So I don't see how they could admit to any of those things. How can they say, well, actually, yes, there's a, 
you know, there's other, there are others interacting with us and some of us are being abducted and we can't see them and they can, you know, they can zap you and they can zap your dog and they can drag you off into another dimension or they can just, uh, you know, they can influence your mind and you can't see them and you, you can't interact with them unless they let you. So how are you going to admit to that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the things there as well is like, it depends what there actually is like known in the first place as to how to disclose that, whether it's responsible to disclose that. Like you say, you know, if it's just a case of, we, let's say the US government, again, as, as a very broad example, if they're aware of we've been visited, you know, for, for all the way through human history, or if they've managed to actually you know, capture some of the vehicles. They've potentially even gone as far as bodies. They've even started to reverse engineer the vehicles. Perhaps they've even gone as far as to have success engineering the vehicles. Like you say, Frank, they've cracked a couple of the observables, but they've not managed to crack the other one. You know, there's all these really complex issues at play there, isn't there? And even any of those options, you know, of the extent of what is actually known, the, the knowledge that is is there, even with the, the the most minimal of those options, it's still very very complex as to how to even begin. You know, kind of bringing that information forward to the public. Yeah, and and, and I just want to add to a point that Dave made. I mean, um, and I'm not, and again, like Dave, I'm not saying that it's happening. But you know, if if there were a situation where you know the government, the U.S. government, for example, had been in contact with you know an other species, say for example an extraterrestrial, I'm not putting forward the extraterrestrial hypothesis, but say they've been talking, they've been talking to somebody, they've been talking to a race from somewhere else, and they've been reading, uh, receiving information, and you know maybe like a little bit of help here and there. I mean, you're not going to want to divulge that to anybody else, and certainly not if they're if, if they're operating like on Earth and amongst you, because I mean, imagine that that has the potential for massive societal upheaval as well. Um, some people, I don't know if you're in the Middle East, some people might see them as jinns, other people might see them as devils. Um, it'll upend a lot of people's uh, you know, belief in God and, and all the rest of it. So it has, it has the potential for major disruption to be a major kind of discontinuity, right, in kind of like societal stability. And there's already enough instability in the world. Anything to add there, Dave? Go ahead, mate. Well, it's, well no, I think we're, that's it. I think it's almost baked in. It's almost got its own break around nuts and bolts, the hearing process baked in, isn't it? All the things Frank's just mentioned there we've been talking about would imply that there is a natural break upon what he's brought forth, and that's probably around, if it's anything, it's about nuts and bolts, legacy programs, some reverse engineering, something like that, and it probably would stop there because it's too, there'd be a bit of a hiatus then, people would take it in, and then they'd really have to think about what they're going to do because all those issues are very, can't defend ourselves, uh, you know, like you say, big sort of societal shock, religious, you know, all those issues. So I think, yeah, that's really where we've got to at the end of that is there's probably a natural break, both for intelligence, security and societal reasons, on where the first hearings would take us. It's really interesting. Well, funny you say that, Dave, about a natural break. Uh, I'm going to have to go because I need to go to work. <laughs> so I'm afraid I w we've got a couple of other topics that I was open to speak about, um, but we ended up kind of talking a bit longer on those first two. So I'd love to get you guys both back on at some point, perhaps in a couple of weeks to carry on if, if you're up for that. Yeah, Definitely up for it. Yeah, we just warmed up, Frank. Yeah, part two would be great. <laughs> yeah, just warmed up. No, it was really, 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 really good chatting with you guys. It flowed really good. Yeah. yeah, brilliant. It's always it's always a pleasure, and like I say, we'll we'll, we'll catch up again in a couple of weeks and yeah. uh, do a little bit more talking on on the other couple of bits. Eh? And yeah. uh, thanks thanks very much both of you for coming on. A pleasure really as always. Cheers. Yeah, cheers, guys. Cheers. Thanks a lot.
UFO Thinker Podcast.